0: What's up, y'all? And welcome back to another episode of The Box Factor, where we focus more on perspective instead of opinion. Today I have a very interesting episode and a very informational episode ahead, as I am joined by a friend in Kyiv, Ukraine, named Vlad. How are you doing today, Vlad?
1: I'm doing doing well uh, and much better than the 10 million who have been displaced as a result of this war and uh, 3 million refugees already in Europe uh but uh, i'm i'm holding up so i've been fortunate
0: well i'm glad you're doing well i know it's um it's obviously uh unexplainable to watch what's going on in in ukraine right now and um uh, i just want you to know that my prayers are with you along with the rest of the world um but to start out we're going to ask a few questions we're going to have a good conversation um the first question i really want to ask you is um you know basically who are you like uh what's give me some general information tell me where you are in ukraine and you know just give a little bit of background for the audience
1: sure sure so um i'm a marketer um i have been living and working in kiev in um, it marketing um since 2010 um i was born in um in siberia in russia <laughs> and uh, my family which is uh about fifty percent Russian, fifty percent Ukrainian, moved uh, to Crimea, which was uh, then, well, still it was still Soviet Union, but then it became uh, a part of um, uh, Ukraine. Uh, in um, my family, moved in nineteen eighty-seven, and then it became Ukraine in nineteen ninety-one. Um, I have lived there until I was 16, and in 1998, moved to United States. It was my dream to get an American education. Uh, that was my, I don't know, Ukrainian dream, I guess, and um, it came true. I studied in uh, South Kent School in Connecticut for a year and a half Um then in Elizabethtown College in central Pennsylvania. Uh, I worked for about four years in IT industry in the United States, in Connecticut and um, oh not Connecticut in uh, Pennsylvania and Vermont. And then um, I was in Arizona to get an MBA uh, from Thunderbird School of Global Management and which is now part of ASU. Arizona State University, um, tried to find jobs in New York City and the Silicon Valley. I couldn't, I didn't. And uh, since then, I've been living in Kiev. So that's that's my story in brief. (laughs) So
0: how was the American education experience? I'm I'm, I'm honestly curious because I know there's a lot of people around the world that want to come to America strictly to get an education. So how did you how did you like it?
1: Um, it wasn't everything that I was expecting from it. Um, the high school experience—I um, was uh, well. I had to go to a private school actually, because not just you know, any foreigner can't just go to a public school in the United States because they're paid with the local taxes. So uh, no foreigner can actually go um, legally, <laughs> and uh, and I was determined to follow the legal path. So um, in to do that, I had to go to private school and that was quite rigorous i enjoyed it um i joined um um like a, a junior class mid-year uh in high school and so i had to uh, catch up for yeah, half of the a bit, year. Yeah. And, and um and uh you know i didn't know much about american history um I didn't know about Shakespeare that much. I mean, English was was hard enough for me as it was. And then medieval English was completely inaccessible. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I survived that. It was, it was a good, rigorous experience. Um, and um, well, of course I wanted to get the best education. So I applied to Harvard, <laughs> obviously. Hey man, you gotta go to the very top. <laughs> Right. I didn't get in. Um, so I went to a liberal arts school, which is, I guess like mid league, I would say it's a uh, regionally recognized, but not exactly world famous. Uh, but, uh, a pretty good education. Um, I didn't, I was, I was expecting more to be quite honest. Um, I was expecting it to be more challenging, um, uh, more applicable to the real world. Um, and uh, what I was lacking in Pennsylvania, I was lacking uh, the international perspective. Um, America can be insular at times, so my for my MBA program, um, I went to um, to an international business program with lots of people from all over the world. Um, being my classmates. And that was, uh, that was really the perspective that I wanted the American quality education with the perspective of, of being global. So, right, um, mixed, mixed results, but, um, but overall good. <laughs>
0: well, that's good, man. So I'm, I'm guessing when people first hear this podcast, they're going to know what is your daily life like currently where you are in Kyiv?
1: Um, well, right now, uh, since February 24th, of course, it's much different than it was before, before it was, you know, the COVID era, yeah. <laughs> so I work from home for the past two years sitting on this couch in my kitchen, um. Right now, um, I've decided to switch more to, towards um, kind of like a part-time work situation. And my work, you know, people at my work understood this. And they've accepted that this is going to be the case for, for some time. So um, it's really kind of like, I don't feel a difference between a weekday and the weekend. Um, I wake up, kind of try to maintain a, a normal routine. With uh, breakfast, taking a shower and all of the normal things. All the essentials, yeah. Right, right. So um obviously the life has changed drastically. Um the first um the first week of uh, of the Russian invasion, uh, you know, I could hear my heartbeat. You know, the adrenaline is pumping through veins, is is just incredible. It's um uh, it really uh, focuses you at you know from one one perspective, and then it's really easy to freak out, and um, and and you're very on the short fuse, so you're you're swearing a lot, you're <laughs> you have zero patience, and and you you freak out because of the explosions that happen, and you never know you know if it's going to hit you or um, a place nearby. So after three weeks, actually four weeks of that has happened now. So um, I think after after three weeks or so, you start getting used to explosions in the sky, explosions that you hear around you. Kiev has been spared most of the shelling, so um, it's not exactly on the front line. Um, I can imagine it's hell for people who are on the front line. Um, but in Kiev and in some other parts, of Ukraine, it's, uh, it's more of a, uh, you know, couple of, of the houses get destroyed somewhere in your city. You don't know quite where, uh, but you know, the feeling is that you hope that you'll be fine and, and your relatives will be fine. Um, it's, it's a strange existence, but, um, but it becomes normal unfortunately, so the life is you watch the news, you connect with friends you're you know you're checking with uh with family if they are okay and um and seeing you know who needs help or uh what's what's the charity cause of the day <laughs> yeah. you know who who needs the most help and then you're trying to you know either donate yourself or get someone to donate there or i do my daily facebook posts also to stay sane um i read a lot of the news and um and i try to then distill it into easily digestible pieces because there is just way so much information So um, my contribution (laughs) to this war is uh, trying to inform people who know me about what's happening in, uh, you know, so they don't have to spend the whole day uh, reading and watching the news, but to get some insights.
0: That's a, I mean, you know, you just said you're part of this war is informing and that's a vital thing for people, especially here in, here in the West and, and, and other countries in Europe that don't, aren't privy to the you know uh perspective that you are uh, it's important for people to know the truth and to really know what's going on and and not be dissuaded or disinformed by other information that might be you know pro-russian so or pro-putin we should say um i know you said it's probably hail for other people on the front front lines um do you have any other stories of people's perspectives in other parts of Ukraine like Mariupol or you know Kierson or
1: Kharkiv well um i was um <laughs> i was on this call on the zoom call with um with my um, Alma mater with Elizabeth Town. It was uh, we had a little discussion with some of the professors, and uh, I just read a story that I found um, of a 14-year-old who uh, was living in uh, in the northern outskirts of, of Kiev that were under heavy shelling. Um, that I, I reposted it in my in my Facebook. I can read it. It's not a very long story, but I think it's very telling of um, of the type. You know Please do. experiences that that people have um you know who are under um who are living on the front line and um so it's in English I think it's google translated so it might sound silly uh in in some parts, but I think overall it's um it's understood so I posted it on my facebook uh page um yesterday. If anyone, you know, it, my Facebook is open so anyone can find me. Uh, and uh, the story is of a 14-year-old uh, Yura Nechipurenko who lived in Bucha, which is to the north of Kiev, uh, residential um, kind of suburb and um, so he was the youngest of three brothers uh, living in uh, in Bucha in the midst of really what happened uh, you know a humanitarian crisis there. so they lived in a home with no gas electricity or water for over two weeks. And uh, on March 17th, Yura uh, with his father, they went to the city center, hoping to get some humanitarian aid and medicine. And um, as they were riding bicycles, uh, a Russian soldier stopped them. Um, and um, they were near their house. And so they raised their hands. They said they had no weapons, but the soldier just started shooting. At the boy's father first fell to the ground and then, uh, shooting at, at Yura, this this boy, uh, and the bullets got him, um, like they hit his hand. He also fell down. Uh, the soldier kept shooting and got him into well, he was aiming for the head but shot, shot him in his hood, and the bullet uh, missed. So bullet missed, and so he stayed on the ground for several minutes. Uh, soldiers left. He then rushed to the nearest shelter where he received some uh, first uh, medical help. He went home. He told his family that father has been killed, and uh, so his father was a seventy, uh, forty-seven years old. And uh, but still, for two days they couldn't pick up their father's body. Um, when they finally did, they noticed that there was no longer the um, any like, bandage on his hand. So the civilians were told to wear uh, white to identify them as civilian. Uh, and uh, so his phone, his wallet, the keys to the house were gone. So somebody has you know uh, robbed basically the corpse. Um, and um, the wife of, of, you know, yours, uh, that's what his mom said that the, the shots were fatal on purpose. So the father was shot in the heart and in the head. So execution style. And they buried him in the backyard of the house because, you know, it's uh, it's war zone. So you can't really get to a cemetery or there's no services. All right. Um, so together with, um, Her three sons, uh, they were able to get out uh, of of the city. There was an announcement that there would be a green corridor on the March 19th, and um, they they were basically risking their life to get to a meeting spot where people were being evacuated. And, um, yeah, they prayed every second that they would stay alive, you know, and moved in under the explosions nearby. They were stopped by the Russian soldiers again on their way out, um, which let them go that time. Um, And they evacuated at first to the nearby Cherkassy region, and then um, yesterday... Well, that was the day before yesterday already. Then they um, they arrived to the children's uh, cancer hospital in Kiev, Ochmadiit, and um, th- there the injuries were treated and um, and recorded. His life is in no danger, but uh, but that's that's the story. That's probably quite typical of of the people who are living, you know, on the front line.
0: And it's it's tough because I'm sure there are a lot of stories like that that aren't going to be told. Right. And, right. It's, it's the and I believe. Right. And I believe everybody should be aware of these stories, you know, just so it provides them with an ounce of truth in, you know, a gallon of lies that they were being told, whether it's by people that support Putin or support the invasion for some other ungodly reason and that's why stories like that are pivotal for people to understand the importance of it not just for Ukrainians but for Americans and other Europeans and you know that kind of leads me into my next question why should america and why should the rest of europe care about this war and its outcome
1: right so i think um i think anyone who thinks that this war doesn't concern them or you know will not um, affect them in any way are in denial and under the spell of illusions, because um, it, it's um, it's really a different type of war. I don't think we've had a war like this since World War II, when the world order as as it was before February twenty fourth was established, when no country can um, can decide to attack their neighbor um this changes everything so um if ukraine falls and i don't think it will but let's uh, let's assume that it does or um you know like russia uses some atrocious weapons like nuclear or chemical um other countries will be dragged in and um Let's say, like, if there was an attack on uh, on neighboring countries um, of Ukraine, like Poland or Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Estonia, um, just any any of these Eastern European countries that are next, um, those are NATO countries. So, um, the United States is the founding, um, United States and United Kingdom, and now most of Europe are NATO countries, which have agreement, it's an alliance, it's a defensive alliance, which states that um, when one country gets attacked, it's a war on the entire alliance. So, um, if or rather, you know, when Putin decides to attack a NATO country, this is going to be quickly turning into World War III, where uh, everyone is affected. America will be forced to send troops to fight Russia, um, and already the effects that you're seeing now are uh, probably, you know, wobbly gas prices. Uh, Ukraine also is one of the um, biggest exporters of of food in the world, so food prices will rise because you know not this year. Ukraine is not going to export um, as much food as in the previous years because, well. Uh, we're fighting a war, so a lot, a lot of the territory is a war zone, and uh, and Russia has blockaded um, the southern part. All the, all the ports on the Black Sea are now blocked by Russian navy. So, uh, you know, countries that were. Uh, relying on Ukrainian wheat exports or uh, sunflower oil. I mean, it seems trivial, but, you know, countries in um, in in Asia, in the Middle East that are relying on this will have to get these from somewhere else, which means, you know, global trade will be affected, prices will, will rise, and uh, food will be more expensive. You know, for anyone, uh, for any family which is not wealthy, this will affect their budget on, um, in terms of uh, the cost of transportation, the cost of, of food. Um, so, um, and, and this is short term, right? Um, and even if, uh, even if Ukraine, let's say, if, if Putin's plan came to fruition, Ukraine would have been conquered, destroyed as a state, absorbed into Russia. Uh, that wouldn't be the end of the story. Uh, Putin would... Have continued uh, his wars, uh, and and this is why it's important that that he stopped right now, because otherwise, um, I mean, the mood in Russia is that you know Russia has been wronged by by the West, by the civilized world, so they're gonna take you know you know take their pride back, and it's it's not inconceivable, for example, that they would attack Alaska, which was uh, which was sold, you know, by Tsars in in Russia to to the United States, right, over 200 years ago, right. And um, there is no, they're, they're they're insane enough. Putin is insane enough to then want to claim it back, and. Um,
0: And he would probably do that under the same guise of what he said about Crimea, saying that, you know, there was um, hardships and oppression against Russians. And there's probably, what, 10 Russians in Alaska. (laughs) But, you know, that doesn't stop him.
1: Exactly, right. Any Russian speaker in any country in the world, for him becomes a pretext to invade and uh, protect. Of course, he doesn't you know, care about Russians or any, his own country, because in, in this war, um, most most of the areas affected and most people murdered really are Russian speakers and, and they are civilians. Uh, it's not a typical war where two armies fight each other. This is a very um it's it's barbaric this war uh, Russian military surround cities they indiscriminately bomb um and and shell uh uh you know districts that are only civilian um so it's it's really it's really genocide it's it's genocidal it's criminal and and they um it's it's not a war between armies, it's a terror on civilian population. And of course, if you listen to the Russian television, none of this is happening because they have their own narrative. Which- yeah.
0: Which they only push. And, you know, like the Russian propaganda system, the Russian television system, they say it's a special operation. And you know what I'm saying? That term, it really irks. Like it, it, it agitates my nerves to the highest degree because there's nothing specific about this operation like you said that's just indiscriminate bombing he's trying to lay waste to an entire nation of people of civilians and it's obviously wrong in the eyes of everybody across the world and that's why it's so vital for people to step up the way any way that they can whether that's dispersing true information or donating or contributing arms from you know other governments and other nations, that's why it's vitally important for people to help save Ukraine and its people, because I've told you this before. I don't believe there is a true Europe or a true world without a free Ukraine, because Ukraine is directly in the middle of Europe. You know, it's the heartbeat of Europe. It's the breadbasket of Europe talking about the food exports. And we all want to live a comfortable life. We all want to have you know, reasonable prices for everyday things. And If Ukraine were to go under, you know, Russian control and fall, who says that Putin won't spike everything that people need in life? And that's just going to make it harder for the world to live, not just Ukrainians. So there's multiple reasons why this war is important uh, for Europe and America. Um, I'm curious just to know, because I live in America in a town of Dyersburg, Tennessee, small town, but we're growing, you know, what are the. Uh, direct implications for Americans that you can see would happen if Ukraine were to fall. I don't believe it will either by the way. Might so, I add yeah,
1: I, I really hope that it doesn't and Ukraine is really fighting the war of survival at this po- at this moment because uh to quote Putin I think with this war he wanted a final solution to the Ukrainian problem, right?
0: Like a it- final solution, huh? That sounds familiar.
1: Yes, I think to those who study history, this this should sound familiar, and um, it's it's there's no compromise. It's um, you know we have to survive, or you know like if if Ukraine doesn't survive, it's uh, it's going to be a matter of time, just like in 2014 when Putin uh, um, basically annexed Crimea and uh, and started the fighting in in the Donbas region. Um, Your Hometown, you know, was captured by his army, but it was, it was presented as if this was a rebellion. And the world, you know, unfortunately bought that story. And now the residents of those towns, they're forced, um, you know, conscripted into the army, which is invading the rest of Ukraine. And um, that would be the story for Europe. Um, if, if Ukraine falls, uh, Putin will regroup. He will keep selling oil and gas, uh, funding his military buildup. And then he will force conscript for, you know, people here in Ukraine, a nation of 40 million people, and, and will attack Europe. And um, and once he, you know, is satisfied with that, the United States will be next. And um, and that's his, the nature of the beast, so to speak, right? He will... Um, Uh, He will threaten everyone with uh, nuclear weapons, with poisonous gases, biological weapons. He's already using landmines, cluster bombs, um, and and forbidden weapons of war, uh, just like he had in uh, Syria before, in Georgia. And and the weak response, which is, I think, because people in... uh, in Europe and the United States are afraid to stand up to dictators like him, uh, has really only encouraged him. So if uh, if he's not stopped now, um, you know, um, other countries are not fighting in Ukraine, they're providing weapons, and uh, as many as possible would be nice, right? Oh, for sure. <laughs> because if, uh, if Ukrainians can't fight, it's only a matter of time until... Other countries will be forced to, just like Ukraine was. And Ukraine is not fighting a, um, you know, we, we are defending our land. Non, you know, zero Ukrainian troops are on Russian territory. This is a purely defensive war. So I think there is a moral obligation that uh, that people have to supply weapons um, because, um Otherwise, just like, you know, just like we already mentioned about the Fifth Convention in the NATO agreement, this will be a fight brought onto to the United States. Um, Poland is next door. It's, yeah. um, it's, it's And that would be the next target. Uh, most of the Russian population supports Putin in his, uh, in his invasion um, going further into Europe. And that will be an American war. And uh, there will be, that will mean that America will have to step in. You know, it's not, it's not a choice. Um, it would be a world war, and and I think that that scenario has to be prevented now by uh, Americans right now uh, supporting the politicians who do want to send weapons to Ukraine to defend Ukraine. It's not just defending Ukraine, of course. It's also preventing future wars.
0: And honestly, I feel like. I feel like it's defending democracy to an umpteenth degree, because like you just said, it's a moral obligation to help a country defend itself because it's a you said it's a truly defensive war. We're just trying to maintain our homeland at this point, and we just want to maintain our existence. So if a country like America or any other country that says they fight for democracy were to turn their back on Ukraine and stop supplying weapons and stop assisting in any way they can, then, you know, the principles, the fundamental principles of any democratic country would not be sustainable, obviously, because they're going against their number one principle. And that's to uh, maintain democracy and fight for freedom. And I feel like it's important for people here in Dyersburg and, and all across America and Europe to understand the, you know, scale of, impact that this war and this fight for democracy would have on America and not just Ukraine itself, because a lot of people are so cut off to, you know, international relations in America because we're so we're just hyper focused on ourselves, which is not an insult to Americans. That's just kind of how life is here. And I believe that as long as people know the true implications of Ukraine's Victory and defeat, they'll obviously choose the right side and they'll want to fight for democracy if they truly stand for what we say we believe in. And I believe people can do that on a multitude of ways, whether that's, like I said, spreading information or just helping donate for humanitarian aid and you know military aid and I'm going to leave um some organizations and you can send me a list as well but I'll leave uh, some organizations in the show comments that people can uh, and links that people can go to to help donate for sure um so
1: I am curious to comment on what you said uh, yeah. also so um, uh, I think Americans are tired of wars, and I can understand that after the war in Iraq where uh, a dictator was disposed of, really, and right. uh, war in Afghanistan where it was a tribal situation with some Pakistani troops, really a mess, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really difficult to bring democracy to, to a country, and, and those are cases in point. In Ukraine, um, the, Ukraine is a democracy. It's, um, it's trying to defend itself, we've had six presidents already in, in the 30 years of independence. Um and, um, and I think this is a different type of war where uh, it's not um, a matter of uh, bringing democracy here, it, it is here, it's a matter of defending it, right? And, uh, you know, uh, the risk of not defending it is, is really helping the dictatorships of the world, emboldening not just Russia, but also China with their ambitions to conquer neighboring Taiwan. And that would be also uh, a declaration on war on the United States. Um, same with North Korea, you know, emboldening them to attack Seoul and, uh, and, and South Korea, which is also a U.S. ally, which is also under the protection of the United States and the NATO troops. So the uh, outcome of the war in Ukraine will also be indicative of what other dictators that exist in the world will be able to do um and and this is this is the real um kind of um it, this is the real test I would say of of democracy and uh, which you know is not a hollow world a word these days and, and values the democratic values of, of the free, of the free world. Um, those words should not, you know, sound hollow anymore. Right. They had, I mean, the the
0: importance of democratic values of democracy is, is at the forefront of people's minds right now. Um, obviously with a democratic nation like Ukraine, just, and you see it. And I think part of it is this. So, When I talk to people about, you know, my country and about Ukraine and I try to educate people and and tell them what I know and, you know, just everything I've learned about my nation. It's a lot of, oh, they'll figure it out. They're young. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It'll be okay. Well, it's not necessarily that we can't figure it out. As you know, when I say figure it out, I mean how to be a truly democratic nation, because like you said, democracy is there. The president that we have now, President Zelensky, was democratically voted in. It's not a puppet president like the past president. Okay, and I feel as if people need to understand that it's not that Ukraine needs help figuring it out. It's that Ukraine needs help defending itself against a nation that is much larger and much more vile in their ambitions, I should say, against democracy. And it's really, it's this is also a war on Ukraine, but it's also a war on the West from Putin's perspective. Because if Absolutely. he if he was to, you know, eliminate Ukraine, he would in sense eliminate democracy. And he would say, okay, do you see how easy it was to get rid of the democratic government? Why is it, you know, why is it so important? Why is the West, you know, so highly thought of? And that would just fuel his further ambitions to invade other nations like Poland and other NATO nations. So my question is,
1: yeah. yeah, United States is an ally of Ukraine. So for Putin you know, destroying a country which is an ally to uh, the United States is definitely a win to um, sort of sow this uh, distrust in the NATO, you know, within the European Union. Those are his goals and uh, right was hoping to accomplish them. And so far, I think we've been showing him that he's not going to get it.
0: No, not at all. He thought it, he thought it was going to be an easy, easy walk in and, and, you know, just say, all right, this is mine. And that's obviously not the case, I think the bravery of the Ukrainian military and the even the civilians that are fighting or just fighting on any front, whether that's, you know, the it front or the information front, the bravery of those people and, and the people across the Ukrainians across the world is unmatched right now. And I think people are starting to realize that. And I, I saw on, on your Facebook, you posted, and I think I shared it as well. The rhetoric of this war is starting to change a little bit because at the beginning people were saying, Oh, Nations were saying we need to defend Ukraine and help them sustain or push off the Russian invasion, even though they'll probably fall at some point. Now they're saying we need to help Ukraine win this war. Right. And that's pivotal, obviously, When whenever the pendulum shifts a little bit. And I'm not trying to be overconfident, but I think it's, it's confidence is importance and, and belief is important in fighting a war for freedom. And I think as long as people can see, like the people that listen to this podcast know Ukraine has a real chance of, of not only defending itself, but winning this war. So help now is is more pivotal than the beginning, honestly. And that sounds crazy, but, it, it, it you know, it makes sense in my head. Um, So, if we can just drive home the point, the fact that Ukraine is not only pivotal to Europe, but pivotal to the world, and the victory is a must, I think that'll greatly help the war effort. And, you know, only positive things can come from that, for sure.
1: Right, right. I think uh, at first, uh, most uh, analysts uh, from the Pentagon, the RAND, they were thinking, oh, maybe we shouldn't supply Ukraine with uh, too, ma- too many weapons. They will fall in two days and then those weapons will fall into the hands of the Russians, um, as was you know, the case in Afghanistan. Um, but uh but it's been 4 weeks uh russian army is stuck they're not making progress ukrainian forces are pushing back some of the um, russian forces so right now i think there is a realization that you know ukraine will withstand this invasion and then people are only now starting to think uh what if ukraine wins right uh, inconceivable to most analysts just uh, one month ago right um, and and now this is this is a a realistic scenario which is being discussed um and and this is this is a very important um i think aspect because as part of ukrainian um wind here you know um maybe one one or two weeks ago the discussion was centered around well maybe you know the eastern part of ukraine will you know Will be given to Russia, and then. But the, realistically, a scenario like this only postpones the war by another couple of years. When mm-hmm. Russia will still attack again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know would you know Ukrainians having sacrificed so many lives already, um, are, you know at this point are not willing to betray half of the population again. Uh, right. And, and and agree to another um, peace solution, which doesn't bring peace. You know, uh, so to to bring peace to Ukraine, uh, Ukraine needs to win and um, the armed forces will take care of the army. Uh, and we need really the. Um, the civilized world, the West, uh, to to do their part you know, on the economic front and, and supplying weapons. So, uh, any any company which is still operating in Russia or which has declared that they will continue operating, they're really helping Russia to uh, to continue bombing, uh, you know, killing Ukrainian civilians. And they should be told that this is not acceptable
0: <laughs> on any front at all. And you know, it's I have. I have a um I have a thought here, so we know that my hometown of Donetsk was wrongfully overtaken by Russian supporters, and you know it was like you said, it was under the guise of an uprising and a protest, but obviously well, that was the, the Russian troops yes let's, let's be clear right for sure, and I think. Even Donetsk and Lugansk, their understanding, even though Russia or Putin has declared us as independent states, that doesn't exonify us from the war. You know what I'm saying? There's people in my in my hometown, in my region that are, are are facing the same type of brutality of the Russian army. And that that honestly, to me, that unites all of Ukraine against Russia, because when people in eastern Ukraine that were, you know, told, oh, come to Russia everything will be great blah 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 future and prosperity they're saying that is a bunch of bs it's a bunch of lies and they're understanding hey if i really want to be truly free and i really want to have the true opportunity of choice whether that's in my life or in government i need to be supporting my nation of U- the nation of ukraine and that that would obviously contribute greatly to The effort, not just in manpower, but in overall resistance and the resistance of the Ukrainian army has obviously been um, way more than what people expected it to be. You know, the experts that the analysts that are following this war. And I believe that's a key aspect of this war that was very overlooked by Putin and his intelligence.
1: Right. Yeah, so uh, Russia is fighting uh, yesterday's war, let's say. It's very much uh, World War II tactics while Ukraine is fighting the future war, which uh, relies on um, unmanned aircraft and uh, small groups of highly trained um, people who can, you know, it's not like one army against the other army in the field. It's, <laughs> it's very much tactical and um, using modern weaponry. Uh, so it's it's not a war of tank against tank. Right. It's a, a highly mobile troops uh, basically blowing up Russian tanks and uh, unmanned um, aerial vehicles UAVs, uh, blowing up their uh, the fuel supply, so uh, so they can't move further inland and um, attack cities. Um, so th- these are kind of two different wars. In one, Russia hasn't learned. Um, it's um, it's also I think um, a good indication of, of how ineffective authoritarian rule is, and how unprepared countries that are ruled by authoritarian rulers um for for the future, because um, democracies have their faults, but uh, they can quickly adapt, and um, the election process uh, is is effective in. <laughs> um, Replacing ineffective politicians when in, in uh, autocratic situations. Uh, I mean, you can admire Singapore, how well they've done under autocracy, but we have too many examples like Russia and China that uh, faced with modern problems. These countries cannot mount an effective response. And uh, this is shown in the war. Unfortunately, this. Um, uh, narrative that was supported in the eastern uh, part of Ukraine. Um, they they saw through the lies, obviously, um, your hometown, you know, Donetsk, which had, you know, Rihanna concerts and the football team and... Um, Shakhtar, that's my team, man. <laughs> right. So, um, so now they're living in, in really dire situations. They have curfews. There is no economic activity. People are living in poverty, no cultural life. And, you know, to add insult to the injury, they're now being recruited um, and and forced to fight the war against the rest of the Ukraine. So how
0: important, and, and we've seen this across the news, how important um what's the impact of Russian soldiers surrendering and and, and you know, sometimes even going against their... Their 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 homeland in fighting this war against Ukraine is it? Do you think it plays a vital role or is it just another aspect of war?
1: Oh uh, well, I'm not a military analyst. I really don't know. No, yeah. I know totally it, yeah. is. Uh, it is. It um, is. It's uh, you know. It's it's good for for the morale of uh, well civilian population like like I am and, and the troops, and it demoralizes Russian army, um, knowing that uh, you know. <laughs> If they surrender and, and it, seeing some of some of their uh, war bodies surrender, um, also you know this uh, Russian army, it wasn't uh, announced to them that they're going to a war. They were sent to military exercises, and then were just told to move further and right. Somehow, you know, it's it's convenient, right, to think that, you know, you weren't told that you're going to a war and you went, but but still they were unprepared. And um, so it, 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 <laughs> the psychological part of this war also plays a huge part. Um, and they are surrendering, not all of them, obviously, but quite a few. Um So there's important work being done on this front. So, uh, you know, a Russian soldier who surrenders uh, and uh, turns in their their tank or, you know, whatever war machine they're operating uh, gets uh, safe passage. Uh, uh, I think they get also amnesty. So they won't be, you know, trialed in the court and uh, and get like $10,000, which is a huge amount for them.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the value of information has been shown throughout this war through the ineffectiveness of the Russian army and the Russian military, because if you don't inform your troops on a clear objective, obviously, and and it doesn't even take a military expert to know this, but if you don't inform your troops, they're not going to be, the one, they're not going to be effective and efficient in their objectives, and two, they're not going to be motivated to do anything. They're, you know, you have to be, it sounds weird to say this, but you have to be motivated to go into war and be effective. And what I mean by that is say when I, okay, take this e- example, since we're talking about war, let's not war II. give
1: advice to the Russian army. <laughs> no,
0: not I'm not giving advice to the Russian army at all. But I'm saying it's important even for the Ukrainian military to know the overall objective. And, and it kind of sounds silly, but I'm saying when America was attacked by Japan, Pearl Harbor, World War Two, there was a clear mission of, okay, we've been attacked. We need to defend. So we obviously have something to fight for. And that's what Ukraine has on its side, because we have a main objective. We have a clear goal in mind, and that's to defend our nation. And I think that's a major part of the war that a lot of people, you know, they see it, but they don't really recognize it. And that's a major advantage for Ukraine. By the way, I would like to say I would never ever help the Russian army in any way
1: (laughs) let's let's get that make that let let them let them stay as ineffective as they have been so far. exactly but uh the motivation on the Ukrainian side it it is a war of survival and uh so you know giving in to their um uh, or giving up is not an option really
0: so how can Ukraine win this war from your perspective, what do you, what do you believe has to happen?
1: So I think uh, we do need a light support with uh, all the weapons that can be provided to Ukraine. And as soon as possible, there are lots of announcements with lots of European countries uh, helping, but then it was slow. They were slow in actually providing this, this military aid. So uh, with these modern weapons, Ukraine can win, of course, russian army is huge it's the second biggest in the world uh, in terms of uh number of equipment and some of these war machines and then people so we need lots of weapons ukrainian army is not large at all it's uh, it's in the 23rd place or something like this globally so we do have more people defending now because uh, we, we didn't have a draft yet but we do have a lot of veterans from um, in the war in, in the Bas region eight years ago, and, um, and lots of people have been training. So we have also territorial defense forces, which means volunteers defending their own cities. and That has been very effective also. So um, another part, so I understand people, you know, just regular citizens of America, they can't really... Say you know, or, or send weapons to Ukraine. But what they can do is uh, support the um, congressmen, congresswomen, uh, senators, in, uh, in saying that they do um, uh, support, you know, their efforts to help Ukraine, um, and also um, and also help send a message to the companies, to the American companies that are still operating in Russia, to stop. Stop sponsoring uh, the killings. This is this is really important. That uh, companies have also um, corporations have this moral position to not be on the side of a genocidal murderer. <laughs> so they need to exit Russia as soon as possible. Return once the war is over and once Russia is is a free and democratic country which doesn't uh, want to invade its neighbors. Uh, but trade right now uh, with, with Russia as it is, is, is morally accept, unacceptable and if people uh, can reach out to companies, tag them on social media, I mean, <laughs> every little uh, social media post works. Uh, some, some American companies have still not announced their position including um my (laughs) arizona state university my now alma mater Uh, and and i'm i'm very sad that you know this is this is not a hard choice do you support a a murderous dictator or a democracy fighting for survival right Um, shouldn't be this complicated so evacuate your staff and stop doing business until russia you know from a from a fascist state, it becomes a normal country again. Like no one says, you know, leave Russia forever. But in this time of an um, of uh, un, unprovoked attack, this is this is not the right time to do business with Russia. It's uh, it's
0: sponsoring genocide. Right, and there's a lot of major companies that have pulled out, and I'm not I I don't know all of them, but obviously. Do you think, you know, as a marketer, this is down your alley. Do you think that, you know, having the West companies and the American and European companies pull out of Russia has a a, a large impact on their war effort? Or is it kind of, you know, just basically sending a message?
1: It's both. Right. So, yeah. um any any business continues to pay taxes, you know that sponsors the, the war effort. Uh, some of the components, so um, part of the sanctions that are already implemented on Russia, they can't, uh, for example, import microchips, which are important to uh, to build new rockets, which are being fired at Ukraine every day. So now they've lost that capacity. But also the people, you know, after the invasion of your hometown and Crimea. Um, the sanctions that were implemented on, on Russia were very light. They said, you know, we're not afraid of your sanctions. You know, this is a joke. So that uh, that really enabled them to continue the war, you know, eight years later now. And I think right now the message that needs to be sent is, you know, any trade whatsoever is not acceptable. Um, I would make exception maybe for insulin or, you know, whatever, um, uh medicine for chronic mm-hmm. conditions you know right. so that millions don't die but for everything else i think it's just morally wrong and uh, and it sends the message to the people uh, right now most russians support this war unfortunately um which is, you know, morally wrong, but, uh, 22 years of brainwashing has done its job. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, when, when they fought wars in Georgia in 2008, in Ukraine in 2014, in Syria in, uh, in, uh, 2018, I think, um, those wars were okay. You know, like no consequences came, um, to to the lives of of Russians, they thought, you know, oh, you know, it's us defending whatever you know Putin says. Um, they didn't think that this was wrong, and I think the message has to be driven finally to them, saying, you know, this is not okay to invade countries, the peaceful countries that are nearby. They are no threat to you, and uh, um, this message hasn't been sent to Russia for the past, you know, 20 years of Putin's rule. Um, and uh, if it's not sent right now um more worse sure.
0: and so i'm thinking about this now and i've whenever i was before the invasion happened i was already you know writing articles for my university newspaper on the importance of ukraine and and you know the implications of a possible invasion well now that it's happened mm-hmm. and we see putin's um, ideological beliefs on Ukraine. Uh, He has been quoted in saying that Russia has created Ukraine. And I believe, you know, which is which is a laughable statement. (laughs) It's a laughable statement, obviously. And, you know, you said the 22 years of brainwashing has obviously, you know, taking the toll on the civilian mindset. Um, And I'm sure a lot of people in Russia believe that. How do we change that narrative? How do we as people in America and people across Europe, how do we get through to the to the Russian population or even the people around the world that support the war?
1: Well, by uh, by clearly stating things that seem obvious, I think that's that's a start. Mm-hmm. Because um, you know, a lot of people seem to think, oh, the truth is somewhere between two different viewpoints, and that has been the Russian tactic. You know, to tell the most outrageous lies. And then when people are confronted with, you know, an outrageous lie and and the fact they think, oh, you know, none of the two sides has the truth. So maybe we're in the middle, people get confused and they forget, you know, really important, you know, core democratic messages and values and um so this has to stop i think this whole notion that you know the uh, the truth is somewhere between a fact and a lie um <laughs> when when two sides act in good faith i think then um then this position has a merit right mm-hmm. but russian propaganda is not acting in 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 good faith so i don't think i think it needs to be uh Excluded from from this discourse, you can't consider something outrageous and ridiculous, you know, and undermine your own um, view on on the truth and, and facts on the ground. So, um, part of it is being more 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 certain about you know your own values. And uh and really fact checking and denying uh this Russian narrative their right to exist because it's uh, it's it's fabricated lies, 90% of information that comes from state uh television, and there is no other television in Russia. Right. Or and this whole narrative is also it spreads to the social media and all news sources uh from, from Russia. And um the way to change it in Russia, I think it's only when there is, uh, when Putin goes and um, and uh, I think sanctions shouldn't be removed immediately from, from Russia. I think they should be conditional. Uh, I would say they have a free and fair election part of the sanctions can be lifted. Same thing with independent media. No attacks on journalists and independent media for, for one year. Some of the sanctions can be lifted because they have been murdering and marginalizing journalists for for over 20 years. Um, so, um, so I think once... <laughs> This will have to happen, right? So Putin will have to go. Uh, there has, there will have to be a peace agreement after which um, Russia will need to... Um, so uh, I think we need to be in the position of, you know, Ukraine and, and the West is winning, and we should be in the position to impose our rules on how Russia should be, you know, Acting moving forward, right? If, you, if Russia wants to trade with the civilized world, there are you know there are conditions. You have to share the values, and to share the values, you have to prove that you do that. Uh, so those have to be not just words but a- but actions. And uh, uh, I think the only way to reform Russia is to you know not immediately uh, cancel all the sanctions, but to make them conditional hmm
0: And yeah, that's a I never even thought about the possibility of doing that, but I think that's a perfect way to do that. Um I'm curious as to know what is your because a lot of people are behind the president of Ukraine, uh Vladimir Zelensky, what is your um what's your perspective on Zelensky? Do you do you like what he's doing? I mean, obviously he's He's in mm-hmm. Kiev, he's he's fighting for his nation, He, you know, and before you answer that, I'm sorry, I have to say this before I forget. The fact that pre- early on in earlier in the war, President Biden in America offered an evacuation route for Zelensky, you know, it just Correct. really pissed me off. You know what I'm saying? Because at that point, to me, that's surrender. And we exactly. like you said, we cannot surrender. We have no choice but to fight and i believe you know when Zelensky had that response to that uh you know that offer by america that really Mm -hmm. galvanized all of ukraine around him and really made him you know important to the war effort obviously as the president but obviously Mm -hmm. as a messenger for the people of ukraine and a voice for ukraine
1: how do you feel he's done so far so um just just to comment first on on the American response, um, you know what we were expecting in Ukraine is for America to act like the winner in this war, and America is stronger than Russia by you know factors of many on, on so many fronts, and um, it was a disappointment when um, when the American leadership is not acting like winners and is not acting like a strong force, you know, saying things like, oh, we will never you know, uh, have troops on Ukrainian soil, we will never, you know, move any of our armaments here. So he was giving free reign to to Putin to do, you know, whatever, murder civilians, do whatever. Um, so um, <laughs> on that side, you know, I wish there wasn't so much defeatist messaging coming from United States, you know, if 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 there was no messaging of this kind, that would be more helpful, <laughs> um, and uh, and I think we all need to act like winners. That that would be the winning strategy. You know, it's uh, it it is self fulfilling prophecy if you act like a loser chances are that's what you're going to get so uh, we need to start all acting like winners in this war you know on the democratic side of things Uh, I can respect anyone who will who is willing to sacrifice their life to be in mortal danger you know physical (laughs) defeat Um, um, so I respect uh, Zelensky now I didn't vote for him uh, and I didn't respect him until the war started but uh you know given his actions since I definitely respect him as a wartime president and he has my full support at the moment and uh uh he's uh, yeah he wasn't he, the best president before the war, so we we are caught unprepared uh for this invasion but of course many people didn't expect this to happen, so uh it's right. also unfair to uh to criticize him for for this because uh, um you know, who would have thought
0: <laughs> yeah right, who would have thought so We've covered a lot in this podcast and, you know, to kind of finish it all up, I want to get your overall message to the world. Obviously, I know that seems very broad, but obviously and and strictly to America, because, you know, that's where most of this podcast listeners are. Um, What is your message to America overall?
1: So. This war, you know, is not a war on Ukraine. It is a war on on the world and the United States in particular. And the good news is that we are winning. (laughs) Um, Very good news. We we need to act, you know, this way also. Um, And... um, and Putin's, you know, evil regime will be defeated. Russia will become a, a peaceful country which doesn't attack its neighbors or anyone. Um, and and this will send a message to the rest of the world where there are uh, non-democratic governments that, you know, they don't have a free reign to do whatever they want in this peaceful you know, world, which is, you know, so prosperous, thanks to democracy, thanks to trade, thanks to values and rules that have been set. Um, and and I think this is the message that I want to see um, implemented. You know, fear is what terrorism, you know, feeds off, and the dictators uh, feed off. And Americans haven't given uh, that to the terrorists after 2011, and I think they will not give this to Putin. Right. That's,
0: you know, the implementation of fear is obviously the main tactic of, of people like Putin. And as long as, you know, this is kind of my message as well for the Ukrainian people. And obviously my fellow Americans that are here and Ukrainians abroad, obviously um, fear is the main tactic for people like Putin. And as long as we remain strong in the face of adversity, And we do everything in our power to defeat a pure evil and a senseless, you know, a senseless uh, aggression and and terror against a peaceful nation like Ukraine. Um, It's obvious that the good side of the world will win, no matter how much Putin and his army have in numbers. They cannot defeat the, you know, the beliefs in democracy and the beliefs in freedom if we all unite and stand together for those rights and principles and i believe that the entire world needs to unify around ukraine the entire world needs to support ukraine and it's not only fight for survival but fight for democratic survival as well um obviously a lot of nations in around the world and even uh people in america they see ukraine as just another european country but now they're starting to see ukraine as um, a beacon of hope and opportunity. And I believe that's what really people in America can galvanize around because that's what America was founded off of hope and opportunity, the hope for a better life and the opportunity to implement that. Um, so that's kind of my overall message as well, man. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on today and, and, you know, having this conversation because this is probably the best podcast I've ever been able to do. And I appreciate you taking your time, um, for sure.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Yeah, of course. I'm I'm curious to know, have you ever, you know, you're you're a natural at this. Have you ever thought about doing your own podcast?
1: Um I have, but, uh, you know, it is a job to do podcasts. Sure. <laughs> I think your audience has certain expectations and I'm not willing to take on uh, an additional job at this point. So this this has been a perfect opportunity. Right. One time, very timely topic, um, the perspective that's probably um, appreciated, I hope.
0: For sure. <laughs> <laughs> for sure because i've been telling people you know i've been telling people that this episode is coming up and you know my family and, and my friends they've all been you know so ready to hear what you have to say and i believe the rest of my audience the rest of the box factor audience will be as well so i just oh. want to say you know from from the bottom of my heart and and the rest of my listeners pasiba for sure and um <laughs> yes sir but um <laughs> This has been another episode of The Box Factor. I hope y'all have a great day. Thank you very much, Vlad, for coming on the show. And we will see y'all again.